Hey everyone, welcome to the Voice for Israel podcast for April 26, 2020. Visit us at voiceforisrael.com. I'm your host, Peter Reitzis in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Our guest today is Jenny Aaron. I know I just mispronounced your name. Will you please pronounce it for us? It's not a problem. Jenny Aaron. Jenny Aaron. I'm going to do my best. Miss Aaron is director of Global Gate Public Affairs, advises on EU-Israel affairs, and works with European Union institutions in Brussels. She joins us today from her home in Belgium. Thanks for making some time for us today at Voice for Israel. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for inviting me. So, Ms. Aaron, the Jerusalem Post recently published your widely read column, Israel, a super democracy. You wrote that some Israeli politicians are claiming that there is no democracy in Israel. What is their argument? And is that true? Yeah, uh, Peter, it's, um, it is actually very important to realize that the claims that were made uh, that Israel is supposedly not democratic anymore by some politicians in Israel was made in the context of campaign. So they were actually campaigning. It was a, a, a very rough time because Israel was in the midst of uh, a huge deadlock over a year, actually. They've been going from one election to the other, the third election. And at that point, they needed really to fight each other. And the campaign became uglier and uglier. And we got to the point where um, the stalemate was so severe uh, that one side of the other wanted to gain more power in order to be able to form that government already, that they started accusing each other of taking undemocratic measures. So, of course, Netanyahu has been in power for very long, and this was the first thing that came up for, you know, for politicians of the other side of the spectrum to say, listen, uh, this guy is already so long uh, in power. He's uh, remaining prime minister, although this is a uh, a uh, transitional government, and he's uh, he's trying to escape uh, uh, his indictments, uh, etc. And so they were accusing Netanyahu of 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 becoming a, some sort of a dictator. They even compared him to Erdogan. All of that in the framework of this campaign that they were leading against him. But I have to be fair, while while the other side was doing that, the right-wing camp was also kind of um, accusing the left-wing camp of taking undemocratic measures, like proposing a, a law that wasn't really unconstitutional, but it really made it a bad law because it was introduced in the middle of the electoral process. So the accusation of uh, Israel becoming undemocratic uh, was coming from both sides, more from the left camp, but from both sides, in order to actually to, you know, to relieve this stalemate. And I have to say that actually what it has done, it has brought Israel uh, a, a super bad image uh, from the outside because the outside wasn't following the elections any longer. Uh, they were already tired from following what is happening in Israel after the third election, so they weren't following anymore. But what they did pick up is that Israel isn't democratic any longer. And this suddenly made headlines over the world. 
So that, that's why I wrote this article in the first place. And we're going to link to the article at voiceforisrael.com. I encourage everyone to go check it out. And you touch upon this a bit or a lot in your column. So, you, so, so Israel has had three elections in a year. How should we view this? Is this a sign that Israel is a weak democracy or is it a sign that Israel is a strong democracy? Yeah, so the fact that Israel is having three elections uh, is, to me at least, a sign of a very, very strong democracy because this means that the power is so divided there. I mean, the votes were so divided that none of the two, two camps could come up with, with a functional government. So they needed to resort back to going to the ballot box in order to come up with new cards and, and, and in order to be able to form this government. Now, the ones that were claiming that Netanyahu is holding on to power and, and therefore democracy is weakened, well, Netanyahu hasn't been able to form one without uh, the support and without uh, guns joining his government. And I say even more than that, after the, tri- the third election, Netanyahu wasn't even appointed to form a government. It was Gantz that was appointed to be the formator of, uh, uh, of this government, which eventually they uh, achieved an agreement. So, of course, it demonstrates the strength of Israel's democracy. And, and more than that, this means that Israel's democracy is really unbeatable. Mm. And just remind our listeners, who is Benny Gantz? Yeah, so Benny Gantz is actually the uh, chair of Blue White, which is like the, I can't say really left because the ideas there were mixed. We had there Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, who were like uh, centrist figures, but they kind of aimed at the uh, uh, left voters because they took a lot of voters of the Labour Party, of the Meretz Party, when they ran this election. So they kind of represent the left camp, especially while campaigning, they were campaigning about forming this left-wing government. And so you are not only an advisor on issues related to Israel, you are an Israel national. So let me ask you, where do we stand now? It's my understanding that Netanyahu and Gantz have put together a sort of COVID-19 emergency government. Could you explain where we are now with that government and how, how it's going to function? This government uh, is, there is an agreement, but the government was not approved just yet. Uh, there are numerous things that should happen beforehand. It's quite complicated because the agreement have, has um, many clauses. And uh, one of the clauses is about uh, Netanyahu and Gantz uh, splitting, actually sharing uh, the premiership. Netanyahu should be a uh, prime minister for 18 months and then Gantz should take over afterwards. And so this is something that has to be passed by law because this would contradict uh, an existing law, the principle of rotating. But more than that, Gantz wanted to make sure that Netanyahu will allow him to be prime minister after 18 months and not call for new elections. So Gantz has uh, a, a clause in that agreement saying that if Netanyahu calls for elections, uh, he will become prime minister. So Gantz will become prime minister in a transitional government. 
but this kind of thing is kind of contradicting the existing law that says that the, the, the prime minister in transitional government will be the one that is currently prime minister. So um, this has to pass by Knesset, these uh, laws, these new bills that should allow this agreement to be approved by the end, uh, by the Supreme Court. So I, I have to ask, there's some very, there's some people on my Facebook feed who like Israel, who love Israel, who are very skeptical of Netanyahu. And some supporters of Israel think that this might be some type of trick by Netanyahu, that he's never actually going to give up being prime prime minister. Do you think that there's some kind of trick in here, or do you think this is going to be a, a true power-sharing agreement? That's why, I mean, Gantz made sure of this clause in the agreement that if Netanyahu would announce new elections before Gantz ever had the chance to become prime minister, that is, it is Gantz that becomes prime minister of a transitional government. That's what the agreement is about. So now uh, the, the Supreme Court has to approve it, meaning that there are uh, now, as we speak, actually, they are drawing a, a new bill that will allow this kind of thing. So, I mean, the agreement is based on a minimum of trust, but there is, I, it is really a small minimum. Otherwise, it is all agreed in papers and uh, there's no such thing of a trick here. I mean, uh, Gantz will become prime minister in 18 months. So to perhaps oversimplify or oversummarize some of what you shared, it sounds like you're saying that a sign that Israel is a very strong super democracy is that Israeli citizens are really deadlocked on who do they want to elect, prime minister Netanyahu of Likud or Benny Gantz of Blue and White. And they're so deadlocked that this power-sharing agreement looks like it's going to come out of it, and that's a sign of a strong democracy. Is that a fair way to say it? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So the the reason I know some of this stuff is because I follow you on social media, and uh, it's not flattering you to say that you have a very informative, sharp, concise social media feed on Facebook and Twitter. So... Um, there are days that before I look at the Israeli papers, I look at your Twitter feed because wow. you are so uh, – it's almost like you can predict the future. You sometimes seem to know things before they happen. So uh, thank you for this service. I, I don't know if thank you're you, aware Peter. that you're doing this service, but it's a wonderful service. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for saying this. I appreciate it. Sure. So, so recently on social media, you responded to accusations uh, that Netanyahu has a veto power over Supreme Court judges in Israel. Could you summarize this for us? Does Netanyahu really have a veto power over Israeli Supreme Court judges? Yeah, it's a kind of so, a, a complicated subject, but I'm going to try to explain what what it is about and how this is totally and completely a false claim. What happened is the Gantz camp uh, is actually coming uh, with uh, in total 19 mandates, while the right-wing camp is coming with 53 mandates. And you see there is a, a big difference between the two sides. I mean, the left wing is going to be 19 and the right wing, wing 53. But we are talking about a unity government and not simply a... Uh, a, a new Netanyahu-led government, okay? 
So what happened here, in order for this to be a unity government, they had to, to uh, divide the portfolios equally, meaning that we have now uh, 32 uh, ministers in this government, meaning 32 por- portfolios. Each side is going to get 16 portfolios, meaning that on a n- the number of mandates that Gantz has in his hands, 19, he's going to have almost as equal portfolios, meaning all of them, Almost all of them will have ministries, uh, while on the other side, only 16 of 53 is going to have uh, a ministry, right? So um, they had to negotiate uh, afterwards who gets what. For example, Likud got uh, the, the public security ministry and the finance ministry, while the uh, left camp got um, the justice ministry, for example, defense ministry and uh, foreign affairs, uh, foreign ministry. The, the left side actually wanted the justice ministry in, in its hands because they claimed that they were going to be the big defenders of democracy and that they were going to protect democracy against Netanyahu and so on. And so they received the justice ministry in order to accept to be to be part of this unity government. What happened then, in this justice ministry, you have also the function of a judicial committee over the Supreme Court judges, meaning a committee that has to appoint judges. Now, this is a big issue in Israel because the campaign against Netanyahu was about his indictments and how he supposedly is escaping his trial all eyes were on that, on what will happen with that committee uh, to appoint judges. In that committee, you got nine people, nine people. So three people are Supreme Court judges, two are lawyers, two are ministers, and two are members of Knesset, meaning that four are government or parliament representatives. And there they needed to negotiate who will sit in that committee. I hope you can follow, but uh, uh, it's a bit oh, yeah, complicated. Yeah. Okay. Actually, what, what's happening there is that seven out of, of the nine, if seven out of nine of the people sitting in that committee vote in favor of a judge, then that judge is approved, meaning that only that, that, that two can vote uh, to decline the judge, right? So Likud succeeded, Netanyahu succeeded to get two of Likud representatives in that committee. And Gantz also succeeded to get two of his representatives in that committee, meaning that Netanyahu has no veto power because they need seven out of nine to approve a judge. And Likud are only two members in that committee. You explain that so clearly. It sounds like what you're saying is this is democracy at work with checks and balances. Exactly. But what happened, and there is a story attached to it, what happened is that while negotiating who will sit in that committee, there is one person that Gantz appointed to represent his side of the spectrum. And he was considered as a, re- as a, as a someone that stood up against Gantz uh, when when they questioned a possible government, minority government, relying on the joint Arab list. And the Arab list is the group of Knesset members who uh, more support 
Israeli-Arab issues. Is that correct? Yeah, so actually you got the, the Joint Arab List is actually a merge of four different uh, um, parties, Arab parties. And uh, some are more moderate than others, but you have a very extremist party within those four that even praised terrorists for terror attacks in the past. So Gantz, uh, part of the campaign was that Gantz was maybe going to form a minority government with his left-wing partners relying on the joint Arab list from the outside, meaning that they would have the, the, these parties, these Arab parties will have to endorse the government under guns, meaning that every security issue, every major war, everything will have to go be run through them. They would have to accept, otherwise the government can fall apart. So, so the Arab list would have had some level of veto power. Of course, and they already said yeah. that in advance too. They already said while campaigning that they will not allow a war uh, in Gaza, for example. So how long, I mean, it was absurd to imagine that if there is a major attack coming from Gaza in Israel, that Gantz will have to call them up and ask, will I have a government tomorrow morning if I attack them overnight? So, you know, it was quite absurd. And I think that most of Israelis realized that this wasn't an option. And this is why also Gantz separated from Yair Lapid, who was his partner in Blue White, Yair Lapid, the head of Yeshatid. Uh, he separated for him, from him in order to go ahead with that unity government because Yair Lapid refused to sit in any government involving Netanyahu. And where we stand now, uh, which I gather from your social media feed and from the news, is that Gantz and Netanyahu are trying, as we speak, to form, to get approved this unity government. So, yes. Yeah, so actually they have the agreement. They already agreed about everything. Now it has to, now the Knesset has to pass, uh, laws in order to make this agreement legal for the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court could overrule, uh, this and decide that, uh, the agreement is illegal and that they will have to go to another set of elections. This is the Voice for Israel podcast. I am Peter Reitzis in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and our guest today is Jenny Aaron. I'm sorry, I know it. Just tell me one more time the, the correct way to say your name. Aaron. Aaron, I'm yeah. so sorry. No problem, it's fine. Miss Aaron is Director of Golden Gate Public Affairs. She advises on EU-Israel affairs. She is a citizen of Belgium and an Israeli national. Let's just take a little step back. I want to share something with you to get your feedback. So I was raised in Wilmington, Delaware by proud Jews who love Israel. And growing up, I heard family members regularly say, American Jews should not support specific Israeli leaders. We should support Israeli democracy, and we should support the leaders that Israelis elect. 
Now, I want to ask you, is this the correct way for Jews outside of Israel to view Israeli leadership and Israeli democracy? I think it's a, it's quite a difficult question. I would, if I have to answer simply, then yes. I mean, in the end of the day, the people that live there, these are the people that made the sacrifices for the country, the sacrifices, the achievements of the country, uh, all of that. So of course, in a sense, uh, the Jews in the diaspora have to respect whatever uh, leadership they decide to be democratically. That doesn't mean that they cannot voice, uh, you know, uh, in a debate, they can voice, uh, you know, whatever political preference they have. That's not the issue. But of course, as support for the country, it has to transcend any political preference they might have. And to, you know, to feel attached to the people because it's their own people, it's their own brother and sisters that are there. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's about having a Jewish uh, homeland, the Jewish quest for, for a homeland. So this should be bigger than any political preference. That's for sure. So back in early March, a, a colleague of yours, Gil Hoffman at the Jerusalem Post, I say a colleague of yours because you've written a number of columns at the Jerusalem Post. So Gil Hoffman reported back in March that at the time, 5,630 Israelis had been quarantined due to possible exposure to the coronavirus. And of these, 4,076 voted by taking private transportation to one of 14 special polling stations set up across Israel to safely handle those who were possibly exposed to the coronavirus. This means that 72% of quarantined Israelis voted which as a Jew, that makes me very proud. I got chills just now saying it to you. What does that tell you about the strength of Israeli democracy? Of course, I mean, democracy is very important in the eyes of Israelis. That's something that is a value that everybody respects and everybody wants to uphold because they understand very well that without democracy, a lot of things uh, will go wrong. I have to say also that... Uh, Israel, the Israeli politicians also uh, were looking for a, uh, a bigger turnout because we, they've been already, you know, through two elections and they were already heading towards a third election and they wanted people to come and vote and, and to voice their opinion because otherwise, uh, you know, they, they wanted the people to decide which government, which type of government they really wanted. You know, more people coming to vote, meaning that they will have more, uh, meaning they um, they have morally more power to form this government. So I think that's already also part of the, of the decision to do that. You know, I'll share with you that the day before the election, I was at a local synagogue because Voice for Israel, we brought in Benji Lovett, who's a comedian from Israel. And he was amazing. He was so funny. And after he did his stand-up act at our local synagogue, at a local synagogue, he rushed out to get on an airplane to fly home so he could vote before the polling booths closed. And I thought that was amazing um, how much he wanted his vote to, to be counted. It was really great. Yeah, I think that uh, Israelis really want to be part of the decision-making. 
they are very, you know, everybody has a political opinion. I mean, all Jews in the world have a, have a political opinion at the end of the day, but Israelis really understand the, the stakes here. I mean, there is a lot of things to be decided on uh, uh, when it comes to the security and uh, the future of the state. We are dealing with, you know, with, uh, with the, the, the Trump plan and we are dealing with so many major issues. I think that all Israelis want, want really to, to be part of that and to be part of the decision-making, that's for sure. And I'm going to ask you about the White House peace plan in just a moment, but one more question related to COVID-19. So the state of New Jersey here in the United States, so New Jersey and Israel are similar in land size, and both have populations of almost 9 million people. Uh, so New New Jersey, so I checked these uh, this data about two days ago, and New Jersey has almost 5,400 confirmed deaths related to COVID-19, and Israel has about 200 confirmed deaths related to COVID-19. Um, so from what you can tell, is Israel doing something differently to account for so many fewer COVID-19 related deaths? And how do you think, what grade would you give Israel for how it's responding to the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I just saw because um, I have to say, for example, for Belgium, uh, Belgium is rated like really high in number of deaths uh, for COVID. And uh, I'm hearing many people saying, yes, but Belgium is really counting, communicating all the numbers uh, meaning, uh, you know, in homes and, uh, at, you know, people dying at home and in homes, etc. While, for example, in Holland, they are only counting the people that are dying in hospitals. So hmm. um, I'm trying not to do the, those comparisons. But what I'm going to say is, of course, that Israel uh, really um, showed leadership in this. The uh, I think that we we can we can actually think of two elements in this. The first one is, of course, that, that Netanyahu, the Netanyahu government, uh, really took early action. Before everyone, anyone else, before Europeans and way before Americans, Israel really took action, really closed down borders, quarantined people. Uh, they took really emergency measures. Uh, that's the one thing. The second thing is also the fact that Israel is always prepared for a warlike situation. Uh, the government is always taking into account that a war might erupt any time and that public life could be disrupted any time. And so I think that Israel is also mentally prepared, also, you know, also financially, but mentally also prepared for a warlike situation. And I think that these two elements contributed to the fact that Israel got it so fast under control. And I have to say that even we got, uh, Israel got uh, a lot of praise from, uh, uh, from the Austrian chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, that said publicly that it is thanks to Netanyahu that he took measures in his country to fight uh, COVID-19. Because uh, he said, uh, Netanyahu woke me up. Yeah, and I, I knew that because you posted it on your Facebook feed. So I'm so thankful that I, I got to see that, that that was, really, that was really neat. So I've already kept you for a half an hour. Would you permit me a few more questions? Yes, no problem. Great.
This is Peter Reitzis from Voice for Israel, and I'm joined today by Jenny Aron, who advises on EU Israel affairs, and she's joining us today from Belgium. So let's talk about the White House peace plan. Uh, I'll just set it up a little bit. In early 2020, the White House released their much-awaited peace plan. Former ambassador and Knesset member Michael Oren described it as, quote, the most realistic plan I have seen since 1993. It most reflects realities on the ground. And Oren went on to point out that the plan provides a path towards Palestinian statehood, and it also rejects the so-called right of return. And the White House plan, according to Oren, rejects the uprooting of hundreds of thousands of Israelis and rejects the division of Jerusalem. So how do you view the White House peace plan and how is it being viewed overall in Belgium? So exactly like Michael Oren is uh, describing it, it is, of course, uh, the most realistic plan. And why it is the most realistic plan? We have to, you know, the people are rejecting this plan just for the mere fact that Trump is the one that introduced this plan. But actually, you know, if we think about it, this plan is is dealing with a lot of, of details, You know, I mean, the Europeans just repeated a few days ago that they will not accept any annexation and that Israel would be violating international law and that they still uphold the uh, UN uh, security resolutions of 242 and 338. But that's fine. But I mean, what about the details of a plan? Because if you are not going to deal with the new realities on the ground, then what are you really contributing to apart from saying a few statements, old statements that have, that are completely disconnected with reality? So even if the plan in question, because we have also to, to understand something, uh, the Israelis also didn't accept, uh, the whole plan in, in its entirety. Netanyahu also said in the White House, we will negotiate Based on this plan, he didn't, he didn't accept the plan in its entirety either. So, I mean, the Europeans or any other people criticizing the plan, it's fine. They can criticize, but they will have to base their opinion on something realistic. They can even take the plan of Trump and analyze this plan and say, you know what? There are a few ideas here, but I would do it differently or something in that sort, but they don't do that. They just reject the whole plan and say, we are going to resort to our one-liners that we've been repeating for over decades, and we are just going to remain with that viewpoint, and that's it, and they reject the plan. So, of course, Michael Oren is right when he said it's the most realistic plan. That doesn't mean that everybody has to agree with it but at least admit that it is realistic and based on the things happening on the ground. Yeah. And when I listened at the time to Michael Oren discuss this peace plan and uh, Ambassador Oren worked so hard in his career to bring peace between the Israelis and Palestinians. And to summarize what I heard Oren say, he basically said, look, the Palestinian leadership simply doesn't want a Jewish-Israeli state. Period. And that's the problem. Uh, And boy, that sort of took the wind out of me because it presents a huge problem. Do you think that that view is part of the big issue here is that 
that any plan that ends with an Israeli state with a majority Jewish population will be a problem? I mean, not to me and you, but to others. Look, um, the fact that the Palestinians never accepted an Israeli state is a fact in the past. And, and a lot of people are going to say, yes, but that was in the past. Maybe it's not like that today. But <laughs> that doesn't even matter anymore. What matters is that the, what the changes are since then. Today, we got more than 700,000 Jews living, living beyond the green line, okay? Beyond the 67 lines. So 700,000 people, you cannot criminalize them all. They live there. So, you know, we are, okay, yes, it's true. The Arabs always rejected Israel as a Jewish state and they don't want Israel at all. That's fine. But now we are dealing with something totally different. We are dealing with a reality here. And, and at some point, everyone else, everyone that wants to be involved in this debate have to take everything into account. And criminalizing 700,000 people is not an option. Hmm. So when the White House peace plan came out, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall at the time that Benny Gantz said something like he supports the, the White House peace plan, but only if Jordan does as well. And now it seems like Benny Gantz's position is that he supports the White House peace plan, period. Um, what do you think brought about Gantz's change of mind on this? I think that uh, Gantz realizes very well the implications of squarely opposing Trump's peace plan. Uh, first and foremost, because there is no other plan at hand. Uh, secondly, there, there is a relations, Israeli-American relations. You cannot just reject uh, the plan of the most powerful nation uh, in the world. You have to at least consider it. And of course, I mean, in the end of the day, it's what I'm saying. He ha He can have any opinion he wants. I mean, he can even want to split the land in two if, if that's what he thinks. But the reality is that so many people live there already. He will have to deal with that. Even the left-wing party that is Meretz, that always vowed to uh, renounce on the territories and uh, wanted to split the, the land in two, I cannot imagine any prime minister, even of Meretz, that will overnight decide we are going to uh, to transfer all of these Jews elsewhere, and 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 that's it. I mean, that's not even a possibility. That's not realistic. That's not anything. I mean, that would it's not even uh, doable. I mean, so in in the U.S., I think the term is it's a non-starter. Is, exactly. is that about right? Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. So. Let me ask you about some issues in Belgium. For the past year or so, I keep seeing articles uh, on my Facebook feed about anti-Semitic parades in Belgium. And just yesterday uh, on my Facebook feed, someone posted a BBC article showing carnival marchers in Belgium dressing up as Orthodox Jews with long, fake noses. So what is going on in Belgium at these parades, and what has been the public response to this anti-Semitism? Yeah, it was quite a big, big issue because it started last year. Uh, they paraded huge stereotypes of, uh, of uh, Jews, you know, with the whole big, big hooked nose and uh, money bags and rats, uh, the whole deal, 
the reaction was back then, uh, of course, all the Jewish communities the worldwide, I mean, in the whole world, everyone reacted, uh, were really horrified by it, by the resemblance of how it was uh, during Nazism. You know, it was the same kind of parade. And suddenly they were parading this kind of stuff again in the streets of Belgium in uh, 2000, back then in 2019. And so, yeah, we reacted. Uh, the, the Belgian reaction was, was totally, I don't know how to, to, uh, describe this, but it was, uh, totally hallucinating in the way, uh, they did not understand the implication of what they did there. So I'm going to explain a bit in their defense how they, uh, they explain things. Um, this is a carnival. And so they say that they are being, you know, that, that they are mocking everyone, politicians and all religions and everyone. And so it is true. If you go there, you see that they are really literally mocking every politician and, uh, and every other religion. You know, they are mocking a, a lot of, a lot of issues and they are, they are actually taking Issues out of, uh, you know, the popular issues that are running, you know, in news and, uh, and, uh, you know, also in, in current affairs in Belgium. And they are, and they are making caricatures out of it and they are enjoying this, they call it carnival. Now, what happened was that when the Jews expressed their horror in this and explained that this was unacceptable and, you know, the word anti-Semitism started flowing around, they got angry. They said, we are not anti-Semites. We are, this is just carnival. Come and look. We are laughing with everyone. And you should even take it differently. It's the fact that you are part of our society. This is why we are also laughing with the Jews because you are part of us. This is the way that they uh, defended themselves. Of course, when the Jews tr tried to explain, I mean, the Jewish community in Belgium really tried to explain to them why this was unacceptable and why this is, you know, a, a you know, the root of, of, of evil, this kind of stuff, because this happened in the past and these uh, kind of stereotypes always lead to, yeah, to, to more, you know, to incitement and, and, and to violence and it could lead to hate. They did not want to accept it and even accused the Jewish community of wanting to interfere with, with their traditions. It was, it was incredible. I, I read that, that they tried to say this is freedom of speech. Yeah. So, uh, there were, yeah, yeah, but it went even beyond of freedom of speech. They said that we were interfering with their traditions. And that this was unacceptable. And of course, when you went, Wait, I'm, I'm laughing because a tradition of anti-Semitism. I mean, you know, it's 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 appalling. But I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Exactly, but it's exactly how you say. I mean, uh, there is. I mean, I didn't know that part of their tradition is to hate Jews. You know, but but apparently they cannot see the difference. And uh, we, of course, you know, there is also a, a uh, here an element here that is also very hard for. The Jewish community to explain because in a way they are mocking everyone but in a way it is different with Jews but it's also hard to explain to them why it is different with the Jews uh, why this kind of thing might lead to hatred uh, real hatred against the Jews and might really 
bring the Jewish community in some kind of danger because of it, and you know more than the mockery of other uh, population and religions, etc. That's really hard to explain. Well, it's troubling to see the videos and the pictures, but I appreciate the work that you and others are doing to shed light on this important issue. So thank you. Thank you. So I want to ask you about your your job a bit. So you started your own consultant consultancy company, Golden Gate Public Affairs, and you mainly represent Israeli officials, organizations, and NGOs, and even some business firms to the relevant officials in the EU. Uh, can you share with us perhaps an example of how you advocate for Israel in Europe? Yeah, so um, I'm I'm independent. So what happens is that, you know, when there is an Israeli organization or an NGO or official uh, that wants to come and present their agenda or their plan or or, you know, just uh, have relations with Europeans, I basically help them, I guide them through the process, meaning that I would set up the meeting, I would discuss strategy, I will, of course, accompany them uh, to the meeting and, and really try to contribute to whatever their plan is. But there is more than that. Uh, the European Union is very complex. Uh, it has, uh, you know, uh, the European Parliament, the Commission, and there's so many uh, decision makers there. And of course, also among the parliamentarians, you have to find the right people to talk to and, uh, uh, you know, in order to get your, to advance your agenda. It is really hard for them really to navigate through this uh, very complicated European Union. And so I'm there to explain a bit uh, how to do that and how who to approach and what strategy to uh, apply and uh, and uh, we have to try to, you know to come up with with a functional plan in order to uh, to succeed our mission This is the Voice for Israel podcast. Please check us out at voiceforisrael.com. May I ask you two last questions, Ms. Aron? Of course. Great. So in the United States, there has been a tension between progressive movements, movements and progressive Zionists. And some have even proclaimed that feminists can't be Zionists. What do you think? Can feminists be Zionists? Wow, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of a... Uh... You know, when, when, when it kind of in my, in my mind, it sounds very absurd and, uh, even ridiculous, you know, this kind of, uh, phrase, can Zionists be feminist, you know, but yeah, I know that the political situation in, in America right now is very polarized and, uh, they arrive to such, uh, statements. I don't know how they get there, but I can tell you something. If Zionists can be feminist, I mean, in Israel, women's rights, uh, is not even remotely under pressure or anything like that. Even Israel Tel Aviv was uh, mentioned as a world leading on female entrepreneurship, and it is meant for for to demonize Israel. This is all this is. I mean, there's nothing else to it. 
So let me ask you just one last question. Now, I know you have visited uh, the Triangle area of North Carolina once, so you're you're not an expert uh, on our local scene. But let me ask you this. On April 16th, 2018, the Durham, North Carolina City Council passed the Israel Resolution, making Durham the first city in the United States to boycott police training specifically with Israel. Uh, from where I sit, this was pure virtue signaling by the Durham City Council because Durham had no plans and were not considering police trainings with Israel. So from your view in Brussels, what do you make of this? To me, it is part of for politicians to position themselves in a certain way on the political map. Opinion about Israel uh, anywhere in the world, but especially in America and Europe, is kind of positioning the, the politician on, on the, on the spectrum, you know, when you voice your opinion about the healthcare and economy and all of that, this is part of how you position yourself. If you are pro-Israel, then you must be more on the, uh, on the, in the Republican side. And if you are a Democrat and you voice, uh, uh, praise for Israel, then you are more, uh, uh, center oriented. And if you are very, very anti-Israel, then you must be a Bernie Sanders, right? So, um, I think that it's a way for for politicians and city councils to position them, themselves because, as you say, I mean that's not even they didn't even plan of having that uh, Israeli police in Durham, right? Yep. So uh, the term we use here in the states is virtue signaling, um, but it sounds like we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So um, okay, then I learned something. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but. That's what I mean. I mean, that's not even, they didn't even plan to come, right? There, there was no plan for this, but they had to have this Israel resolution, right? Because that's the way, yes. that's a popular uh, subject. So let's uh, do something with it. That's all this is to me. I mean, nothing more. At Voice for Israel, we're going to put a link to your Twitter feed up so that folks can follow you because we're recording this April 26, 2020. But as we know, things change quickly. So for people who want to keep up to date, I encourage them to follow Jenny Aron on Twitter. And thank you so much for joining us for this inaugural episode of the Voice for Israel podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for this. 